Welcome to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. I'm Richard Bliss, the host. You're listening to episode 183, and I'm joined by my co-host... Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games. Jamie, this is another great episode. I think this is episode number five that we're together. I, I love doing these episodes, and they always go so quickly, and we never seem to uh, have enough time to talk about everything we want to talk about. What are we going to talk about this time? Well, something that, that you and I have been discussing lately is the idea of um, running a Kickstarter campaign versus building a company that is grounded in Kickstarter and, and is building up from Kickstarter and even starting a career from that, which is something that I've recently been able to do. I've, I've taken the success of my two Kickstarter campaigns and made it my, my career. Um, so I know you, you talk to a lot of people about, about that. A lot of people are, who want to do it or are curious about whether or not they should do it. Um, how, how do you, how do you want to talk about that today, Richard? I think that's a great topic because I've had a lot of, I've had some guests on recently. Um, I think I have a few more queued up who have kind of, and that was a question that actually came from a listener a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, how do you use Kickstarter to to start a company? It's I've been doing this now. I think what I'm over two years, uh, kind of pursuing this, and it's a question that I've always wanted to know: Is this new thing, this crowdfunding thing, particularly Kickstarter? Is it really a sustainable business model? Can you go make a living based on other people's generosity is the way I kind of thought about it. But I realize, particularly in your case, it's not necessarily their generosity, but you found something that they want. And it's interesting because you've been able to – in 2013, you were able to scale back your workload to uh, doing Stonemaier Games part-time. And then right. at the end of 2013, you actually were able to kick that into a full-time position, right? That's right. Yeah, my uh, my old job let me go cut my hours by 25% starting in around July, and it just got to the tipping point, kind of a four or five months later, where I realized if I really wanted to grow the company the way I wanted it to, um, I couldn't just run one Kickstarter campaign and put out one game a year. I needed to run a couple campaigns a year. I knew that we had the potential to do that, but I just didn't have the time. So I decided to go full-time. And was that a – I've known you a little while, and I can ask the question only because our audience has only known you a short amount of time. I think I know the answer. I'm guessing based on how thorough you are in every aspect of your life, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of uh, trepidation in that decision. No, I – as I was kind of mentioned, a lot of people have been uh, wishing me luck, which is great. I love that people wish me luck. But I would not make a decision that big if luck were a factor in me making a career out of this. I don't know if it will be a lasting career, but I know that right now we are financially stable enough due to retail sales of our games and due to a new international partnership I have with a production partner in, in Europe and one that I have ready to go in China. Um, I had those relationships in place that, that we can survive as a retail company, even if the rest of our Kickstarter campaigns fail. So that, I kind of, that was when I, when I had those arrangements set up, that was when I knew, okay, I, I really can give this a chance and, and try it for a year or two to see if I can be successful at it long term. Okay. Let's talk about that real quick. Can we, can we talk yeah. about, um, you just mentioned those. Can you go into any kind of details about those arrangements? Sure. Yeah, so the, the first arrangement, I guess in chronological order, um, I guess the first one is retail. I, I, I work with a, a guy you and I both know named Aldo. He 
he runs a company called Impressions that gets games out to distributors. And so a big part of my company has become producing a great Kickstarter game and also creating a, what I hope to be a great retail game to sell to retailers. So for Euphoria, we have 3,300 copies of retail games out there. And a big reason I've done that is um, that I it takes a lot of work and effort to make a game. But once you have already made a game, if you can continually sell it on in retailers, not just one time, but a couple times a year, do big shipments where you get it out to retailers, then you have a sustaining business model there. So that was the, the first aspect. The second is that I, I have a, a good relationship with a producer in China. I view China as a huge market for board games. It's kind of untapped at this point, despite the number of people over there. Wait a, minute, so, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah, Let me just make sure yeah. I understand what you're saying. You're not talking yeah. actually a partnership to manufacture games for the U.S. market. You're talking about a, a partnership to manufacture games for the Chinese market? Yes. Chinese language versions of, of our games. You're the first person um, I've ever heard that's gone that direction. It's usually coming the other. Okay. So I didn't know that. All right. Yeah. Sorry. Didn't want to interrupt. Keep the story going. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, so I kind of view with, with Euphoria, our, our international support was really great. And so I wanted to continue to expand upon that. So I talked with this, this producer in China, um, not a manufacturer. We have our manufacturer, Panda Manufacturing. This guy is a producer of games. And from now on, whenever we produce a game, he is going to buy into the print run um, for Chinese language versions of the game, which will not only expose the game to the Chinese audience, um, but it will also cut down on cost per unit of games that I produce within that same print run using economies of scale. So let me just check so that our listeners pay attention, because I would think that if you're, hey, if you're going to change all the language and everything out... Oh, but Euphoria doesn't have any – it has no localization, does it? Euphoria on the board doesn't have any language. It has very little. We probably would have to reprint the board. There, I think there are a few words on the board. Well, then how do you – but how do you then yeah. – how do you get scalability if you actually have to make changes? Where does, it, where does the scalability well, work? Yeah, so the, the cards – so say um, Panda requires a minimum print run. Panda is my manufacturer. They require a minimum print run of any component of 1,500 copies. So if I print, if I want to print 4,000 copies of Euphoria, my Chinese production partner would have to print any language-dependent elements of the game in uh, runs of 1,500. But for components like the dice and the pieces, they're completely, you know, they, they don't have any words on them. We'll just produce more of them. It'll cost less for each die to make. Got it. So you now, okay. All right. So it is, and so not only there, so let me just make sure the Chinese menu, uh, Chinese publisher or producer is, is financially participating in the overall cost and driving down costs of those overall costs because of these components that are being manufactured for a, a larger base. Exactly. Exactly. And it's pretty cost effective for them because yeah. the manufacturers in China, they don't, they don't have to ship it over to the U.S. like it is here. <laughs> and the games aren't competing with the U.S. games because a U.S. Uh, an American isn't going to buy the Chinese language version of the game. So right. We're, we have independent markets there. And, and so that dovetails into my – oh, yeah. Well, well, so, sorry. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay? And now no, suddenly – I caught you off guard with that one. I forgot You did. That you caught me off guard with that one. And so now everything you do is with a calculated purpose – Right. Yeah. If 
So where I got, I got to, I'm fascinated by the fact, and I got to believe my listeners, our listeners are too. What, what decision points did you make where you realized that you thought this was going to work out? And what are, what, what do you think the payback's going to be or the, or the outcome of this? I mean, I know you've run some numbers somewhere. Well, it's, so the, the key for me is that kind of like what I just said, I'm not competing with a, a guy in China who wants to buy a copy, a Chinese language version of my game, um, or someone who wants to sell him a Chinese language version of the game. So all of my other markets in the world that I'm trying to sell to, I'm not competing with that. So any money I can make off of that is, is profit and it can help, um, my, my backers, my, my, the people in the, in the rest of the world who are trying to buy the English language version of the game because it might cost a little less. So uh, if I understand then, and I know I've already said this and I know I'm repeating myself. So because he basically paid for the increased cost of Chinese components being manufactured, which lowered the cost, you look at that as, hey, there's no risk here. It's a wash. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no risk. Do you have any idea how big the market is? Well, the, the guy I'm working with, he's, he's at the forefront of the market and he's trying to grow it. He says it's actually a pretty small market right now. Like I think he mentioned that Eclipse, which was a major board game that came out two yeah. years ago, yeah. probably has current runs of probably 20,000 copies by now out there, maybe more. Um, he said they brought it to the Chinese market and it sold maybe 500 or 1,000 copies okay. out of the billion people who live in China. So, That's right. Relatively small proportionally, but he sees it as a, a great growing market as long as they can keep the prices down. If they're producing the game in Germany and they're having to ship it over there. Now they're faced, it's ironic, yeah. they're now faced with the exact same issue that we're faced <laughs> with, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, all yeah. right. So that was that one. We're going to have to have another topic uh, discussion just about that. I'm, I'm fascinated by that because I see first mover from a pure marketing standpoint, um, yes, it's a tiny, tiny little footprint in a very uh, big pond. That's a terrible mixture of metaphors, but um, that, but by being first uh, like that, you're in such a strong position. How many other games are you aware that he's working with to make that happen? Obviously, you're too. Eclipse, you've mentioned three. I mean, does it? Are we talking hundreds of games? Are we talking a dozen games? Oh no, less less than a dozen. Wow. At this point, all right. And all the others are from pretty major companies. I, sure. No, uh, no. From no. The, yeah. Wow. From the list he gave me, we were the first really small company to try to get in that door. And it wasn't a matter of me contacting this guy and saying, "Hey, do you want to do this?" It was a matter of a, a number of emails creating a relationship with him over time. Uh, working with him when we had the Kickstarter campaigns to get in Kickstarter versions of the games. Um, yeah, the, like like we talked about, a lot of this is building relationships and, and leveraging that into something that helps both both parties. Wow. All right. So yeah. I interrupted your story uh, because that was pretty big. Wow. <laughs> uh, so then, okay, so you found the Chinese menu, uh, Chinese producer, and then what happened? Right. So the, the last portion of it. And so the Chinese producer is basically waiting for me to print the next print run of Viticulture, and that's when we'll we'll do that. Um, in the meantime, I was contacted about a month ago by a game producer in Europe, in France, a guy named Tim Dumain at Morning Players. And Tim was really excited about Euphoria, 
and he wanted to produce it in Europe. He wanted to produce a French-language version of it. He wanted to produce a, a German-language version, and I think Italian and Spanish are the, the first few he's, he's targeting. He wants, and it's a little different than the Chinese arrangement that I had, because he wants to produce it at Ludofact in Germany. Which is a very um, famous so that, board game uh, publisher manufacturer. Right, very well known, and it's within the EU, so he doesn't have to deal with shipping from China like, like I do. Um, and so over time, we worked out an arrangement that works for both of us, where he will have the right to produce and sell European language versions of Euphoria within Europe. So again, he won't compete with me. I'm producing the English language versions of the game, and I'm still selling them on into Europe. I have I have games at Amazon.de that I'm selling um, to English language people, people who speak language English in uh, in Europe, and he'll be producing independent of me, independent print runs at Ludofact. He'll be producing. European language versions, and for every copy he makes, I get a royalty. Okay. So that's that's the third piece in the puzzle, where once I, I kind of saw that arrangement happening and, and knew it was going to happen, um, that was the, the third piece that I thought, okay, this is, I can make a business out of this. I can make a career out of this. And there's another piece that I, a layer, we won't even say a piece or a stool, but a layer. And that is, we've talked about it on the show before with you, um, this inter, the international shipping uh, yeah. piece, because that has been such a, I mean, and, and it's not just board games. Um, I look at uh, other projects, anybody who writes or talks about their project, international shipping is the, is the Achilles heel to so many of these projects. Yet you address that. Did, did that, did the effort and process and cycles of thinking that went into the solving the international shipping problem, and if anybody's interested, they can go to your website to look it up or go to one of our former uh, episodes. I don't remember which one it was. <clears throat> solving this international shipping to make it basically free for everybody worldwide, did that contribute to this? Because it's sounding like now you don't need that, but I guess you still do, right? Well, yeah, I, I still want to be able to sell games directly to people around the world. And I don't want to charge people in Europe forty dollars to buy to, sh to ship their seventy dollar game over to Europe. Because honestly, there, to, yeah. there are people in Europe, and I imagine in China, who would like to. And we just we talked about this on our previous episode. Um, mm -hmm. That completionist, they'd like to have the original American copy because it right. holds some kind of uh, unique brand. Just like sometimes I have a I have a German version of Settlers of Catan. Right. Uh, I yeah. have a German version of Pandemic. Why? Well, because I. It's different, and I like it. Yeah, right. Right, and sometimes it goes beyond the novelty. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people around the world speak English, and and they, they they're fine with the English version of the game. Um, so yeah, that that's that plays a big role in it. I, I'll continue to sell retail versions of our game directly to people using Amazon fulfillment centers around the world. But what at what yeah. point then? Okay, so you you got this Chinese thing. What a couple? You got the Chinese pub, uh, manufacturer Panda. Mm -hmm. You got the Chinese publisher. You got the European publisher. You got your international shipping to be able to reach out. At what point? What criteria did you use to say, okay, now's the time? I can comfortably make this step. I mean, are you independently wealthy? You've some, you know, some trust fund that you've got in the background that you don't have to worry about <laughs> money. I mean, you laugh. I know people like that. That, that's true. No, I'm not one of those people. Um, what, well, really, what, was the, it, what was the criteria then in the last couple of minutes that we've got? There had to be yeah. some in your head because of the way you do things. You had to say, when I, this is the goal. And when we hit that, yes, that decision is not even a, a difficult decision to make. 
what it came down to was a calculation. I mean, the, the idea of time and the lack of time was what prompted me to make this decision. But what enabled me to do it was that I looked at the numbers and I said, okay, I've got all these arrangements set up. I anticipate this many retail sales. Um, we have this much uh, cash on hand. If we fail in everything else that we do, if I, if my next Kickstarter campaign is terrible, if we don't make any more games, then I can survive for about a year on the cash in, in, on hand that we have. So I have about a year to make this work. And once I saw that, that it, so it's not a matter of me living week to week or month to month. I've got a year to actually make it make it work. And once I saw that, once I had that lined up, I was like, okay, I can I can do this. I can I can make this happen. And that's a worst case scenario. I I do not think that we are in danger of of, uh, <laughs> of failing on our next Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Dude. And just to, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar, your first campaign, uh, Viticulture. How many backers did you have for that project? Nine hundred and forty-two. And then Euphoria came out. And how many backers did you have for that project? Forty-seven hundred, a little over forty-seven hundred. Four thousand seven hundred. You know, a five-fold yeah. increase. And the reason I bring that up rather than the money is because that just indicates a growing base of people who are who know the Stonemeyer game brand and who like your games. And no, right. um, the next project you come out with is going to do very well. Um, Okay. Yeah. I yeah. mentioned the money because of, I guess, personal security, but you're right. It really all comes down to those backers. Those backers are going to be the ones who, who made this happen and who will be the ones that well, that's gonna, um, right. create a spark of fire for the next campaign. That's right, and that's yeah. what's going to keep you going. But you're right. Yeah. I was asking, and you answered it specifically, Is there a, was there a money amount that you looked and said, okay, I can take this risk? You also were in a situation, I've got to believe, that your job was very supportive of this decision. They were. They were. And I, it, I should also note that I had three hundred thousand dollars on my bank account after, on the like the day after the Euphoria campaign, <laughs> and right. that was not the day I quit my job. That was definitely not the day to do it. The right. day to do it was when we had, went after I had shipped the vast majority of the games and and could, and uh, and knew that I had the leftover money for the from the retail sales and the productions, all that. So yeah. The day after you do, you have all that money in your bank account is tempting, but that's not the day to clear. Yeah, we've seen too many of those uh, horror stories out there. Um, yeah. You know what we, you know what we need to do? We need to. We're out of time. Uh, in our next yeah. episode, we need to talk about the cautionary tale because there are people listening who think, "Woohoo, I'm quitting my job," and we need right. to. In our next episode, tell them why they may not want to do that. You willing to do Absolutely. that? Absolutely, definitely. All right. Well, this we're out of time again. Um, I'm Richard Bliss. Uh, I've been joined by... This is Jamie Stegmeyer at Stillmeyer Games. And you've been listening to episode 183 of Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. Hopefully you've heard something inspiring. I know I have. Dang, that Chinese stuff was cool. Um, listen, <laughs> Jamie's going to come back as a co-host in a future episode, and we're going to talk about some of the cautionary tales of actually quitting your day job and doing this full-time. But uh, thanks for listening. We hope you've been inspired and we look forward to seeing your Kickstarter project out there so we can help you fund your dream. Take care.